I want to begin um, a new series uh, that will take us into some of the Psalms and um, speak to you from these Psalms. I called the series Songs in the Dark. And I felt that many of the Psalms speak to our circumstances in unique and precious ways, given that we are going through an enormous amount of upheaval as a society and in our personal lives also. And so beginning today, I want to speak to you from the 23rd Psalm, which we were just singing um, even now. And it's a deeply familiar Psalm to many of us. It's probably one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, and yet it's so profound and rich. Let me read to you the 23rd Psalm here. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think that um, one of the greatest enemies to our faith and indeed to the well-being of our society in general is the, the massive cultural shift and trend that has moved towards individualism. Individualism seems to me to be a great threat to so much of our well-being and it lies at the root of many of the things we see in modern society, the fragmentation of relationships, the isolation of individuals, people having left home um, as just um, on going on their own way and being wrenched apart from community, the prevalence of consumerism, which also we understand touches even in our um, spiritual lives. You think, you know, when you when you live in a city like London, consumerism in terms of people's participation in church and in terms of their, their, their religious life is a real threat to spiritual health. And so individualism has led to these kinds of fruits and ultimately to a relativistic approach to truth that each person gets to define truth for themselves. And so as, as a church, as Christians, we resist, we strongly resist many of the ways uh, that individualism affects and seeps into our bones and shapes the way we think. We fight for community. We fight for accountability. We fight for the relationships which make life feel um, richer and make our lives more rounded and also help shape us to become more like Jesus. We want mutual dependence upon one another. Uh, th that's why there's some real irony at the moment that we, we're worshipping you know, alone in our homes or just with our families in this way. There's something broken about this and we need to acknowledge that this isn't the ideal. This isn't where we want to sit or rest. I'm grateful for the, the opportunity to speak to you in this way and for us to participate in worshiping Christ on his Lord's day. But we know this isn't right. And so individualism is on the one hand, a huge problem at the same time. However, it's fair to say that the Bible the Bible's view of the, the dignity and worth of the individual is a profoundly important truth that largely has arisen out of the Christian faith of all faiths, that we're not just viewed as a blob, as a great you know, conglomerate of, of human beings, but rather that God knows us as individuals 
And so, I mean, this means that as, as Christians, we cannot hide behind our family, behind our upbringing, behind um, any of those things. The Bible puts a great stress upon you personally having a relationship with God that is, um, that is real. And so when Christ talked about his role as the shepherd in our lives in John 10, he said the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So God knows you by name. You are an individual in his sight, but also the reflexive truth to that is that the sheep follow him for they know his voice. In other words, the scriptures put a huge emphasis upon your personal relationship with God, that it's not just a case that you participate in the rhythms of the community, but that you must have an individual personal relationship with the living God. And so a time like this, when we are forced to live individual lives, when, when, we're, when we're extracted from the community, really exposes what kind of a spiritual life we have. Whereas in the normal run of things, the normal rhythms of the church life, you can be buoyed up and supported by the structures of church life and the rhythms of meeting in one of those homes and meeting together on Sundays to the degree where really your spiritual life could be weaker than you, you know, but actually it's held up by others, which is a good and wonderful thing. When those support structures are taken away, what's left and what's revealed is whether you personally are walking with God, whether you have that sense of his intimacy and nearness to you, which is why I wanted to come to this psalm because the opening words of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, really speak to that need within all of us that we must know Christ in a very personal, intimate way as our own shepherd. Everything that the psalm says about the blessings of knowing Jesus flow First and foremost, from the reality of that relationship, do you know him? Are you aware that he has called you by name? Can you say the Lord is my shepherd? That's the first and most important thing. Everything in the psalm flows out of that truth. But then to know Jesus as your, as your shepherd, we experience the richness of his shepherding activity and care in our lives which is described so beautifully in this psalm i want to show you five words that capture the richness of this of what he 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 is to us and how he ministers to us and how he loves us as our shepherd the first word is provision he says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want provision now i'm conscious at a time like this that we are more aware of anxieties in our lives than perhaps we are in the normal run of things. And if you ask the question, where does anxiety come from? I think one of the answers we have to give to that is that anxieties flow out of the fear of what's to come. I recently heard a, a definition of anxiety, which I found really pertinent and, and, and astute, which is that anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. And it seems to me that our anxieties are more intense in a moment like this, partly because we are more uncertain about what the future holds on so many levels, and also that we feel a diminished sense of control. We're very much being caught in the tide. It's like there's a great wave crashing upon us as a nation and even globally, and we're out of control. And for this reason, anxieties that you may have been conscious of before or may not have been conscious of before are surfacing again. And anxiety is a real danger for us. And, and one of the ways which anxiety is most powerful is because of this, 
this sense that we will lack, this sense that we won't have all we need. Now, I want to, I want to state up front that I believe there is only one real cure for anxiety. It's not escapism. We are tempted now more than ever to dive into the, the hole of escapism and to spend endless hours just numbing our minds in entertainment. I find it interesting that Netflix had to downgrade their, their streaming quality just to keep up with the demand that's going on internationally right now. We don't find p- peace for anxiety or in, in the face of escapism. Neither do we find a cure for anxiety through control and hyperactivity. Now more than ever, we realize that because our hands are tied. It's impossible. The illusion of control has been stripped away from our lives. We realize that we are very, we control very little about our lives and we're very much victims of of the situation and the circumstances. Neither do we cure anxiety through medication. Medication seems to me to at times be valid, but of course the danger is that it, it fails to address the root reasons for why anxieties bubble up in our lives. And so even if it can help you somewhat, it can't solve the issue. Neither can we cure anxiety through meditation. I believe that even if um, there is some, a biblical framework for a Christian version of meditation, the version which has so been embraced by our society has been a dehumanized philosophy of detachment in which you really separate yourself from, from life and st- sit outside of it and not let anything bother you, which is not a very Christian way of responding to things. God teaches us to be full-blooded in the way we engage with the realities and the problems of life. Or how then do we know peace and how then do we know the, the removal of anxiety from our lives? And Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 6. He says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And it wasn't just that he didn't just offer us a negative, like a command, don't worry. He then tells us why. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows everything you need. And this is where the psalm begins. It begins with this absolute statement about the provision of God over our lives, that he is for us, that he cares for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In John 10, when Jesus is describing himself as the shepherd to us, he tells us the way in which he's provided for us. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Paul takes this idea in Romans 8 and reasons it out. And he says, These words, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God didn't hold back giving to us his own precious son, when Christ died on the cross for us, then we have no fear. We need not fear that the the great shepherd of our souls will provide every other need. He's a provider. That's the first word. The second word is the word peace, which is related to this. But the, the psalm goes on and says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Now, I, wonder, I wonder if you find it difficult to rest. At a time like this, one of the things that's exposed in our lives is that the, the challenge we have in knowing what real rest is. If at any time we ought to be able to rest, it ought to be now because so many of the activities of our lives have been taken away. The busyness has been taken away. For many of you, your work has become near impossible. There's, it's like your workload has diminished and your activities have diminished. And yet, you may well discover that you don't have any rest in your soul. 
And this is this is seems to me to be a very common uh, condition for humans that the problems aren't so much out there; the problems are in here in our souls. Now, I was reading um, a book by a man called Philip Keller, who was a shepherd, an actual shepherd of real sheep, before he became a pastor of a church, and. He describes some of the experiences of shepherding sheep, how one of the things that they they lack often is peace. They're jittery creatures. And he said that there have to be four things true of them in order to know, in order for a sheep to relax. They have to be free of fear because they're very timid creatures and they're conscious of danger all the time. He said they have to be free of friction because they're very social creatures and there's a real hierarchy in the flock. And if there are any relational frictions, even among a flock of sheep, sheep can't relax, he said. And so the shepherd has to help help them in that sense they have to be free of torment he said that flies lay little eggs in their noses which hatch into larvae and then these larvae live inside the head and sometimes cause abscesses and great discomfort to sheep and the shepherd has to be conscious of their health needs to deal with the situation or else they cannot relax and be at peace and he says they have to be free of hunger if they if a sheep is hungry it stays on the move it never stops it never rests and it seems to me that this speaks deeply to our present circumstance. You know, we, we know we're jittery creatures as humans, aren't we? It feels like so much has to be in place for us to experience anything like peace, anything like rest. Because our souls don't stop, you know, that sense of agitation inside can continue even when all your activities have come to an end. Now, how does our shepherd give us this peace and this rest? It tells us that he meets our needs. Yes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. But more than that, what David tells us is that the shepherd is attentive to your soul. He says, he restores my soul. Now, Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators, said this. He said, God makes his saints to lie down. He gives them quiet and contentment in their own minds, whatever the lot is. Their souls dwell at ease in him, and that makes every pasture green. What he's saying is that it is much less about your circumstances than it is about what God is doing in, in, in the interior life of your soul. This peace that God speaks of is a supernatural peace, which reminds me of this verse in Philippians where Paul tells us, to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, it's not a rational thing. It can be in spite of messy, threatening circumstances. He says that peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a supernatural element of our faith, friends. We as Christians not only know our shepherd is our provider, but we also know him to be our peace giver. And I don't think that this is just about knowing physically perfect circumstances. I think it's about knowing this transcendent, supernatural, even miraculous peace that the spirit ministers to your soul. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. Do you know that kind of peace right now? Let me show you a third word that captures the activity of the shepherd in our life. It's the word purity. David goes on and says that the shepherd leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, reflect on this for a second. What is the 
greatest danger to your spiritual health in this specific season that we're in right now. And here again, the, li- the lives and activities of sheep are actually surprisingly instructive for us as humans. We know the Bible often speaks about the metaphor of sheep being wandering creatures, and we're conscious of that. I read to you that verse at the start, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But Philip Keller also tells us that one of the, the ways in which sheep get into danger is not just through wandering off. They're a danger to themselves, even just by being safely in a field. He said in his time as a shepherd, he would look out at the sky. And if he could see buzzards circling anywhere over one of his fields, he knew that there was a sheep in danger. And more often than not, what you would discover is a sheep had turned on its back and its legs would be in the air moving and the blood would drain from its legs. It'd be unable to turn over. It'd be stuck. And the reasons why sheep find themselves in this situation is because one is if they get too fat, they roll over. One is if they get uh, their wool gets too heavy, and especially if it rains and the, and, the, and the wet soaks into their heavy wool. Another is they just like lying down on the edge of holes, he said. And, and what happens is for some reason they just tip into it and then they find themselves stuck on their back with their legs in the air. I find this really interesting way of describing one of the dangers of the existence of a sheep. It speaks to us in this season because the danger right now is not so much that you'll wander off. You know, there's nowhere to go. You're stuck at home. There's very little that you can do. That's some, not so much the danger for us at this particular moment. The danger is rather that you'll roll over, that you'll lose the use of your legs and find yourself like a beetle on its back, stuck and unable to move. And this happens because there's no routine, because there's no accountability, because there's no work to do necessarily for some of us, because there's no exercise, because there's very little daylight, you're stuck indoors all the time. And all these sort of ways in which our lives are held up and made better and richer or taken away from us. And so the danger is you just roll over like a big fat sheep and and lie on your back. What does God want? Well, David tells us that the shepherd leads us in right paths, is, is a literal translation, as opposed to crooked paths. And he's speaking here of the richness of following your shepherd, of knowing that intimate walk with him. Um, Paul puts it in the New Testament like this. He tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. And I want to stress for you, friend, that even though you think you might not be in danger right now, now more than ever, it is vital that you learn to walk in intimate step with the shepherd. Now more than ever, it's vital that you foster a relationship with him in which you know you know the spirit working in your life and you are responding to the leadings of the Holy Spirit, that you don't become lethargic or overly relaxed or too lazy in your walk with God. The shepherd wants to lead you in right paths. Even if there's no physical place to go, you can be on an experience, a profound experience of journeying with him in which he takes you into deeper intimacy with him and guards your soul, keeps you on right paths. That's the third word, purity. We talked about provision and peace and purity. Here's the fourth word. It's protection. David says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're in a valley right now. There's no question in my mind that that would be an apt way to describe the circumstances and the situations we're in. And I want to ask you, why is the valley 
such a dangerous place to be in. And it, I don't think it's so much because of what can happen to you. There may be a genuine threat to your health and life and well-being. But remember, Christ told us not to worry about damage to our bodies. He, he told us what's more important is the state of our souls. And so the danger of the valley is much more about what can happen inside you than it is that what can happen to you. And you think about the particular dangers of being in a dark season of life. There are the doubts that can destroy your faith. You know, there's a sense of which being in the shadow of death, being in a place of darkness, you may feel like I can't see God. I'm not aware of his presence. And doubt can begin to afflict you. I don't know if you've experienced this already, but there's something destabilizing about the way we're living right now. And it may be the case that you feel you're in a, in a shadowy place that God feels far away. Doubts can destroy your faith. Another thing is fear. You know, these are internal dangers. These are soul dangers. Fear can erode faith. And clearly this is a place where David felt tempted to fear, which is why he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Fear is a real enemy to us spiritually. And now more than ever, I think we're aware that we could be, we could be responding to the circumstances with fear and that that fear could do us harm. And this, therefore... The Christian has to be someone who, with David, can say, I'm not afraid. You know, even if stuff happens, even if things are going wrong for me, I know that the shepherd is there. It's his presence which comforts me, even in the dark valley, even in the darkest place. The shepherd's presence is, is a powerful presence because he's described for us as, you could use an expression like a violent comforter. Some, there are some situations in life where you want to be with a person of violence, not because they're a threat to you, because they're a threat to others. And that's how David depicts the activity of the shepherd for us in the dark seasons. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the reason is because, well, the staff, you know, the shepherd's staff with the, the hook on the end was a, a, an instrument that he used to gently guide and direct and sometimes to pick up lambs. But the rod was a weapon. The rod comforts the sheep because he looks at the shepherd and knows that the shepherd has a weapon in his hands, that he is our protector, that he is for us, that he is with us in the darkest places. And knowing the presence of God absolutely transforms your experience of every valley. We know in particular that we have the great shepherd Jesus with us in this moment. When uh, the apostle John encountered jesus in the first chapter of the book of revelation and he says he, that he fell on his face as though dead because he's so in terror and awe of the presence of the lord jesus christ in his glorified heavenly form jesus words come to him like this he says fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i'm alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades Friend, I want to remind you of that. We're in a dark valley, but the one who is with us is the shepherd, Jesus. And he has the keys of death and Hades. I would not want to be with anyone else in a time like this or at any time in my life, any time of danger or threat. I want to be with Jesus, the one who has the keys of death and Hades. And let me tell you a final word which captures what this psalm promises us. It's the word place. Now, let me read you these last words 
verses and I'll describe to you what I'm what they depict. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, you, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is describing a place at the table of God, at the table of this great shepherd. He's saying that there is a seat for you. Now, what are we being offered then? I, I think that these verses capture the very heart of the gospel of what it means to be a Christian. When the Bible wants to communicate the offer of God in the gospel, the joy of God that's offered to us in knowing him, more often than not, the image that captures it is the picture of a feast. It's there. It's actually all the way through the Bible, but you can think about the very first miracle that Jesus did was at a wedding feast, turning um, the water into wine. And many of his parables are about the invitation to a feast and how people respond to that invitation. The final chapters of the Bible end with the great banquet feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus marrying his church, the bride. There's these amazing verses in Isaiah 55, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. These verses for me capture the heart of the gospel because he's saying you can come and partake. You can have food, you can have drink, you can have festivity. And yet it's going to cost you nothing. Buy it, but with no money. Because this is a gift. It's all of God's grace. And this is what... This is where David brings us at the end of this psalm. He describes the lavishness of our shepherd in the way he hosts us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is the depiction of a very generous host who who puts oil on the heads of his guests as a sign of honor, who fills their cups until there's wine tipping over the edge and pouring it onto the table. You know, this is it is not a kind of bring your own bottle situation where you go to someone's dinner party or pay for your own uh, dinner at someone's birthday at a restaurant. This is the lavishness of a host who says, come at my expense and enjoy the goodness of my table. Now, I want to say there is a bit of a warning here because David talks about enemies. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, which means that there are some who are at God's table and there are others who are not. And there's a sense in which, you know, there are those who refuse the invitation to be with God and be at his table and enjoy his feast. Jesus spoke about this. He talked about the invitation of the gospel going out to a great banquet and people who say, oh, I'm just too busy. I've got to go and do this, that or the other thing. And he says, fine, you know, you'll be locked out. Now, what, what's it like to be left outside of the feast? And I felt it seems to me like the situation that we're currently in is a pretty good picture of what that's like. We're holed up in our tiny flats in isolation in, in the center of London. We have limited access to food because it just seems to all be disappearing from supermarket shelves. We can't be with one another and enjoy food and drink and laughter together. We're separated and the closest approximation to that is having an online meeting via Zoom. And it, and to boot, if you happen to have caught this virus, one of the things you will ex- you will likely experience is a complete um, lack of enjoyment of food because you cannot taste it anymore. It destroys your ability to smell and taste food. So imagine this situation and being outside of God's feast is like the experience of being in, in, in permanent lockdown, 
separated from the feast, unable to go to that place where people are laughing and enjoying the presence of God and enjoying his lavish generosity. But we are not in that situation. We may be physically in those circumstances, but if you call Christ your shepherd, you have a place at the table. You have a place at his feast. There's a sense in which we begin to partake in that even now in this life, like the psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But of course, this experience of being in lockdown ought to greatly enhance and intensify our longing for that day when we will be with God and be all together at his banquet table. And as David puts it, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friend, I don't know if you can call Jesus your shepherd. I don't know if you can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. If you cannot, I want to invite you and say, listen, everything that I've been describing, everything that's on offer for you can be yours if you merely respond to his invitation to enter into that relationship with him in which he becomes your savior and you give him your sin and you experience his forgiveness. And I want to invite you to pray even now. If that is you and you want to become a Christian, you want to be a follower of Jesus, then do so now. It doesn't matter whether you're on your couch, in your bed or at your desk, wherever you are, you can pray right now and say, Lord Jesus, be my savior. Why don't we respond all together then in in prayer? I want to encourage you wherever you are. Why don't you bow your head? And these musicians are going to come back and lead us in a response of worship. But let's bow our heads and pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you that the experience of being shepherded by you is an experience in which we know your care, your intimate love for us. David often found himself isolated, alone, in exile, in dark places, on the run, threatened, his, li- his very life threatened. And he knew then what it was to cast himself back upon you and to say, Lord, you're my shepherd. Lord, now more than ever, we need to know you personally. Lord, so many of the things which um, can mask the true reality of our spiritual life are taken away from us right now. We're not together with your people. We're not held up by the experience of church family in the same way. We need to know you as our shepherd. We need to know the richness of your blessings in our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we sit in this psalm, as it were, meditate upon its truths, that we would taste of your goodness on this Lord's day. That, Lord, we be assured of your provision, that you won't let us go short. That we know that supernatural peace that comes near to those, even when our circumstances are amiss. That we'd walk in purity with you on these right paths. I pray for those who've been wrestling with temptations or with lethargy in this time of isolation. Lord, bring them to life again and to spiritual vigor, we pray. We pray, Lord, for your protection in the dark valley, but particularly the protection of our souls, that we will have an outlook of knowing you are with us. The the great violent comforter, the shepherd who has a rod and a staff, is with us in this circumstance. We pray for the enjoyment of a place at your table, of the richness of feasting with you 
of tasting your goodness and of anticipating the time to come. I ask you, Lord, for those who are in a place where they can honestly say, I don't know Jesus as my shepherd. Lord, draw near to them right now. Teach them to call out to you and to pray to you, to reach out and to say, Lord, be my shepherd. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.